about to hear from our chief fixed income strategist, Dustin Reed. We talk all about fixed income markets and inflations around the world, stopping with the Fed, the Bank of Canada, getting his views on Europe and the German and Italian bond situation specifically. We spend a little bit of time talking about China as well as what we expect of Jacksonville. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Dustin Reed. Uh, Dustin is our Chief Fixed Income Strategist. Dustin, welcome back. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Matt. Lots to talk about today. I want to start with uh, inflation in the U.S. specifically. We recently got the most recent uh, U.S. inflation number, a little lower than the last print, uh, citing some people to say that inflation has peaked. What's your view on inflation? So I think the inflation story is really interesting. Um, I think this idea that inflation has peaked is partially correct or maybe correct, but I think the way it's getting interpreted by the market is probably not correct. And just to rewind for a little bit, um, I would say that we've been pretty hawkish on inflation, never really buying into the transitory narrative last year. Um, In Q2 of last year, 21, we started talking about inflation as having leveled up. And then throughout the year, while a lot of people were kind of taking the transitory narrative, we didn't really buy into that uh, from kind of a, you know, on these podcasts or written or, or in our trades throughout the portfolio. Then we kind of moved away from the level up language to sticky. Um, and then I would say in the last month or so, we've started to talk around the idea of um, or, or messaging this as uh, as uh, structural as opposed to sticky. And I think that that's really a good term to kind of use here for for where things are at on the um, on the inflation side, so maybe from an annual perspective, inflation has peaked. Maybe, um, right. but if it has, first of all, we're obviously still at a very high level. Um, and secondly, I would say that uh, there's a long way to go. I think the core inflation numbers, uh, the ones that kind of everyone sees, the kind of the main the main CPI prints, whether it's here in the U.S., the core the core stuff is still very broad and very deep. You're seeing it. Um, across many, many sectors and and the increases are significant. This isn't just a food and energy thing anymore. Mm. This is quite quite broad and quite deep. And then when you look at things that are a little bit off the off Main Street, more um, uh, more kind of academic stuff along the lines of what some of these, particularly in the US, what these Fed district banks put out. So like Cleveland, who does has an amazing research department, puts out Cleveland Fed has a um, has a, uh, a trim mean CPI and it's still running well above 6% um, uh, 6% uh, annual, excuse me. And then the Dallas uh, Fed has one uh, core trim mean PCE. That's probably the Fed's favorite alternative CPI indicator or at least inflation indicator. And it's running well above four, I think 4.3 annual. These are big, these are big numbers. These are big numbers because a lot of these ones, these these trimmed numbers, these trimmed indices, basically, as I would say, like top and tail it. So you basically right. take off the most volatile stuff at the top and the most volatile stuff at the bottom and then trim it and then kind of look at what's happening in the middle. So it's almost like a super core, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ones that the Fed's looking at, 
uh, are running somewhere between four and six percent annual, and and that is, and that's that's you know super core. So that that is very very structural stuff, and so you know you kind of come back to the CPI print, kind of the main print for July, which obviously printed in August recently, and you know, obviously it came off and it was a little bit weaker than expected, but I think a lot of the underlying stuff and the underlying momentum in the economy is still. Is still very much there. So I think this market is exceptionally fickle and looking to trade off uh, kind of anything um, that gives any kind of uh, any kind of relief whatsoever. And I think that um, I think the market once again continues to be a little bit ahead of itself. Okay. Um, you know, on a, on a, on a number of fronts. The other thing I would say on inflation that I think is really interesting. I was talking about this with a couple of people last week. Um, you know, it's one thing to get from, I think, 9% annual in the round, let's just call it 9, 9% annual to six. I think that's, I don't want to say it's easy, but I think it's not, not probably not very difficult because it's just mostly froth. Right. But then getting it from six to three, I think is going to be a lot heavier lift. And that's where mm -hmm. I think the market doesn't really appreciate how how long the policy rates have to stay at a certain level and maybe the terminal rate needs to be higher than where it's currently priced. And that's kind of going back to our thesis that we've had for a long time, including, you know, we talked about a lot in the last podcast where uh, the 2023 pricing probably needs to be uh, fixed uh, and, and amended, adjusted uh, a fair bit because the, the terminal rate is probably not high enough, although it's, it has come back. Uh, the starting points, probably not correct, uh, or at least the end, uh, maybe the end points, but I would say the end point of the cycle is not correct. That's also adjusted. And the slope of the line is also probably not correct. So all those things have actually moved our way since uh, we did this, we did this uh, podcast a month ago, uh, but there's still more to go. And uh, so the, the market's still in the process of adjusting all that. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously in the inflation dynamic is only one part of what's going on here. The, uh, you know, the output side, and in particular the labor market side, and I would also say financial conditions are also very important in terms of how the Fed and the Bank of Canada and other central banks are going to try and manage the next six to nine months, which are going to be, uh, I think, quite interesting and quite challenging. And I think for the market, quite surprising. I think the market would be quite surprised at how, how, how high uh, and for how long uh, a number of these banks keep policy rates. Hmm. So you're, you're, if I could just summarize, you're thinking that the Fed will continue to, to hike at a, sounds like, fairly aggressive rate um, in order to deal with this structural inflation. Uh, you referenced the employment numbers as well. Is, is the fact that the U.S. economy still has very strong employment numbers uh, just more supportive for that case? Or do you think that the Fed will react when they see that employment number start to weaken, or if they do? Well, I think the underlying economy is probably stronger than I would have expected a month or six weeks ago. And okay. it definitely manifested itself in the labor market report from a couple of weeks ago, the one basically in between our, our, our last podcast here. Right. Uh, the, the payrolls number of the U.S. was very strong and not just the headline number, but <clears throat> some of the underlying stuff that you, you, you would look at. So, first of all, the unemployment rate hit a new cyclical low at three and a half. Right. Uh, three and a half percent. We the U.S. touched three and a half briefly in 2019, but the economy hasn't been that low uh, with that low unemployment rate since the late 60s. So it is a very, very tight labor market. Right. Which is something that we've been talking about 
for a long time. You also saw the earnings component for average hourly earnings for the labor market for the non-farm payroll report uh, in the U.S. not only come in pretty strong for the current month, but the previous month got revised higher. Um, so it's running at a good clip. And when you look at some of the other wage data, it is also running at a pretty good clip, particularly the, um, a lot of people like to look at the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, which is running at at least at least 6% annual, uh, if, not, if not more. And uh, a number of the other ones have momentum as well. So there's a lot of underlying uh, momentum there. You know, we've talked about it a couple of times on, on these podcasts. The Fed seems to be at the top of its dashboard for, um, for how it looks at the labor market, it looks at this this ratio called the beverage ratio, which is basically job openings versus the unemployment rate. And with this uh, very strong three and a half uh, tick uh, lower to, in the unemployment rate um, from three six, the previous month, this beverage ratio went uh, went up to one point nine, um, and that is just simply too hot. The Fed, I think, wants to see that ratio around one point two, give or take. And the the issue is that there are too many, uh, there's too much upside pressure on wages, just the way the structure of the labor market is working. And the Fed wants to take a lot of the froth out of the labor market. And it's looking at this so-called beverage ratio to, uh, to try and measure, or at least give a, at least a, a headline uh, idea of where, of where things are at. So I think, you know, I think the Fed wants to, that to come off. And so you can see a situation, although I think it's unlikely, where Inflation might come off a little bit, but the labor market could remain relatively strong. And that's where I think there's a number of interesting camps in the market where some people think that the Fed will um, ease a bit or at least at least not be as hawkish, some of them would say it. But right. uh, some people would say, well, uh, the Fed's not going to do anything until the labor market really calms down because it doesn't want to have a repeat of the 70s because it hiked in the 70s and kind of gave up too early. And guess what happened? Inflation came roaring back a couple of times. And then you had the the Volcker era in the late 70s, early 80s, where, you know, they got obviously very, very serious on uh, on inflation and rates, uh, via rates, and, uh, you know, caused a very serious recession. So um, I think a lot of people are expecting this sort of uh, uh, blissy uh, utopia to try and uh, <laughs> to try and manage the the next the next set of uh, economic out, outlook and impact for the Fed, um, in terms of maybe not having a recession, the Fed's going to kind of take the playbook from the last number of cycles. I, I don't think that that's true. I I do think, and it's always dangerous to say, but I do think this time is different, and mm-hmm. uh, the Fed is looking at a different playbook, and that's why I think the market continues to not be completely properly priced for. Uh, for how things are going to play out uh, into 2023. Well, listen, I'm, I'm for blissy utopia personally, but I, I suppose we'll uh, defer to you on what's likely to happen. Um, the uh, part that you, you referenced during your answer um, suggests that equity markets and fixed income markets are disagreeing with, uh, with the outlook. Um, and I think it's largely due to the, the rationale that you just gave there. I'm curious, yeah. To combat sort of structural inflation, um, is it is it the Fed? You're expecting the Fed to to hike higher than the market currently uh, expects, or just to hold in at a higher rate for longer, or maybe both? So I think it's both. So kind of so coming out of the CPI data a couple of weeks ago, the market took the terminal rate, the Fed's 
the end point of the cycle to 3.23%, which looked just totally wrong to me. Mm. And I think a lot of people on the team, to be fair. Um, and, and it's, you know, and we, and we traded around that a little bit. I mean, live here now, I think it's probably around 365. So it's, you know, come back by 40 basis points or so. But, um, but the terminal rate's essentially just a fancy way of saying, you know, how high are rates going to go in this cycle? And when you right. hear people talking about, okay, a Fed fund's going to get to 4% or four handle or, or whatever, you know, that's, that's just, you know, a fancy way to say that would be, you know, what's the terminal rate of the cycle? So I'm, I am not completely giving up on the idea that the Fed and frankly, the Bank of Canada will need to get to 4% or at least closer to 4%. And the market has come back that way. Um, so that was, you know, so that's been good. But yeah, I mean, there's been a really, there's been, I'm obviously, this is a fixed income, you know, I represent the fixed income team, uh, you know, fixed income strategy, et cetera. Sure. So don't necessarily um, go over my skis too much on, on the equity side, but clearly, I mean, we're watching it, especially from the credit side. And you now I would say that just from a very macro perspective, I was a little surprised at um, how how decent the Q2 uh, quarterly earnings came out. I mean, obviously not all of them did, but a number of them did. Right. Um, and the forward guidance wasn't terrible. Uh, I, I was probably expecting a little bit more concern. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing equities relatively bid here. And meanwhile, um, the, you know, two tens, uh, the two-year, 10-year, uh, fixed income curve is at the most inverted it's been pretty much since the 2000 uh, tech crunch or tech right. crisis. Uh, you know, we have been big proponents of the flattener trade and you can put that on, uh, you know, a hundred different ways, but the, one of the big ways to do it is, you know, twos, tens, right? So you want to be um, short, short, the short end. So, you know, a lower prices, higher yields in the short end. Uh, so higher rates, in the short end, and then obviously the, the opposite in, uh, in tens. And so that has moved uh, very much in our favor, and it's been it's it's been a great it's been a great trade for us. Obviously, with um, I think the 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 trough so far in two tens has been minus forty eight basis points, and that, that is the lowest we've seen since two thousand when they got to minus fifty six. Right. I think that um, you know I do think that we will see slower growth here. Maybe it's going to take a little bit longer than I expected, but I do think. That we will see slower growth, and part of that all kind of comes back to where I see policy rates and the Fed, and how long it's going to keep rates higher. So, to your question, you know, there's kind of three things, right? There's the terminal rate, how high are rates going to go? I think it's the risk is that it's higher than where the market's priced. Right. I think that that rate can be held at a longer for a longer period of time than the market believes. The market basically thinks you're going to. Uh, just kind of go and get it for a month or two and then start to start to come off pretty quickly. Um, I think that that is not true. And then the third is kind of what I just said, which is the, the slope of the line or the slope of the curve, which is how quickly are they going to really unwind after the first one. And I think that that's, that might be not too badly priced, but I, I feel like the starting point of all this is just is a little bit off. I'm, I'm not against the idea of uh, a Q4 uh, rate cut next year in 23. But I think this idea of something happening in the first half of the year uh, or even Q1, which the market has now backed out to be fair, but it had not a while ago, um, I, th I think looked, looked aggressive. But I, I continue to be concerned about inflation being structural. And I, I think that this Fed, I think the risks are that the, 
that this 365 in the terminal rate is going to be low. And you know, if I'm if I am correct on that, in theory, uh, risk assets like higher like higher credit, um, like high yield credit, or or you know some some cyclical equities, in theory, would uh, potentially be at a little bit of risk there because uh, because rates are moving uh, at higher at higher rates for higher periods for longer than the market has currently priced. Right. Um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, to, to shift focus from uh, the U.S. and the Fed to Bank of Canada briefly, do your comments yeah. more or less apply to Canada or is there something different that you're looking for in Canada versus the U.S.? I mean, I think they, they broadly, they're broadly the same. I think the inflation picture is, is pretty close. The labor market story is relatively close. I think the bank here is... And we talked about it a little bit on the last podcast. I think the bank here might be a, a underestimating a little bit the impact of variable rate mortgages on not only the housing market, but just the overall economy. Um, I was surprised with kind of the, the nonchalant uh, comments that it had, or at least what I what I perceived. But I talked to a number of other people after the press conference in July, the Bank Canada press conference in July, and they were also quite surprised. So uh, there's, there's, definitely a, there's definitely a market out there. But I think that... You know, if if the very rate mortgage story and the housing market story continues to be more of an issue here than in the U.S., then in theory, the the end point of the cycle uh, here versus the U.S. Sh- should be should be lower. Right. And in the last couple of days, actually, you finally started to see the market flip that way. For a mm-hmm. long time, the market had been expecting the Bank of Canada to outhawk the Fed, which is something we did not expect. And now the market's kind of coming our way, although it's I mean it's still pretty much splitting hairs at this point, but it has, it has flipped a little bit. So that is somewhat, somewhat encouraging. There are some people on the street that expect the bank to hike rates, um, in in, sorry, in September. Um, and then that is it. So one more big hike in September and then, and then done. I'm not, I'm not of that camp. I think that the bank, uh, I don't think the bank is going to do necessarily a big, a big hike again in September. I think they might draw it out a little bit more through um, through year end. Both the Fed and Bank Canada both have three meetings, official meetings anyway, left uh, left for the year. But I do think the bank here uh, will probably not outhawk the Fed, uh, and I do think that um, the output story, the labor market story, and particularly the housing story is probably going to keep a, a little bit more of a cap on on the bank. On the bank here, what obviously there are all there are all different drivers, right? The, the mortgage market here is is structurally different than it is in the U.S., um, and so you know that that I think that I think matters. Um, sure. But I also think that the bank here is very focused on the this output gap story, right? And if the economy here continues to outperform and suggests there's going to be upward uh, pressure on on inflation, then you know I'll probably be wrong, and uh, and I think that. Uh, you know, we could we could easily see um, we could easily see the bank uh, get get a little more hawkish. But uh, I think the bank currently the bank here is at two and a half percent. I think they're going to three and a half anyway, if not four percent. Mm. I think it's very very likely. Okay. Uh, well, maybe we'll uh, move uh, a little bit around the globe, and uh, why don't we talk uh, first about Europe? Um, what are you seeing out of Europe and, and broadly, are the trends that you're talking about, do they tend to be global or are they, there are regional differences, significant regional differences? Yeah, I would say, I would say that they are global. I mean, Europe is experiencing an inflation situation that's equally as hot, uh, here, 
uh, equally as hot as it is here or in the U.S. Um, I think we'll see uh, continental Europe well above 9% on, uh, on inflation. And, uh, and frankly, the Bank of England is now expecting inflation in the U.K. to be well into the, uh, well into the uh, double digits, uh, maybe even 13% in, uh, in Q4. So they're, they, are, they are big numbers. They are big numbers. And um, I mean, everyone knows that Europe's got a, a significant issue, obviously, the terrible situation in Ukraine with uh, right. With, with with the Russia with the Russia uh, Ukraine war, um, and there's a fair bit of consternation around obviously energy supply, um, and uh, particularly the gas story. That story is interesting. It's almost it's almost a uh, it's almost a full time job following that in and of itself. You know, with just what's happening with some of the flows in and out of Germany, in and out of some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, in and out of Italy. Uh, Spain, France, and then there's a whole issue with uh, the electric, the electric, uh, uh, electric prices as well. Not just gas, but a number of nuclear reactors are shut down in France, and it's causing um, it's causing significant price spikes in electricity uh, prices in France. You're seeing record high electric prices for consumers and industrials in in Germany. So it's a major issue. And obviously the ECB, the European Central Bank, has a major decision to make or continuing to make major decisions here um, because it's not going to be able to do a whole lot about energy prices, electricity prices, not gas prices or LNG prices, I should say. Uh, but it is obviously worried about second and third derivative uh, impacts. And, right. um, you know, so the bank's going to have to make a difficult choice, but um, I continue to think that Europe is much more at risk of recession than here or in the US. I think that the policy rate in Europe is probably going to remain lower, the terminal rate will remain lower in Europe than it does here uh, or in the US. And uh, But I do think they have to do something. And there are a number of people that think that the, the ECB is probably hardly going to do anything. And I don't think that's going to be totally correct. And so uh, th that that view has actually been so uh, fluid that we've seen uh, the shortening of the curve in the in Europe, particularly the German benchmark, hasn't really performed in the way that you would expect from a fundamental perspective. At one point, a couple of weeks ago, the two-year uh, German uh, Schatz was only 18 basis points, which effectively to me would suggest that the ECB was going negative again next year in terms of its policy rate. Right. And that I have a very, very difficult time uh, believing that's uh, it's subsequently moved higher to kind of the top of our range. And we've been, we've talked about it a number of times on, on these podcasts, we've been kind of in and out tactically of the short end of the, uh, of the European curve, particularly the German curve and a number of times this year, I would say at least three or four times. And, uh, uh, we just had a nice little run here, picking up a little bit, going from 20 basis points to in the round to 60 basis points in the round. And, uh, kind of want to see what the next evolution of the ECB is here and see how they're kind of attacking exactly your question, because uh, I think they need to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of uh, their language. And then mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of really good opportunities in the short end of the European curve. And frankly, maybe even some good flattening positions in Europe. I mean, it's been a decent flattener already, but I think there's probably a little bit more. But the front end needs to cooperate a bit. And so that's definitely a trade that we've... Um, you know, we've been, we've been focused on, but I do think that, I do think the European stuff is going to be, it's going to be a very tough winter. I think, I don't think we're going to get a lot of reprieve from a lot of spots. And, uh, on the good news, I would say the gas storage levels are looking 
not not bad. They're almost they're almost topped up. Italy's almost there. Germany's almost there. Um, but I, I do think it's going to be challenging from a uh, from a supply perspective. And then, you know, it's just structurally, I think the Germany needs to rethink whether it wants to have uh, nuclear reactors or not. Um, right. uh, you know, Italy Italy has an election coming up in six weeks, and it's very very interesting. Um, because uh, if it's a center-right coalition, there's a, there's a debate whether that that's going to be a little bit more Russia-friendly, and you know, could Italy fracture the uh, kind of the this the uh, the entire uh, view towards Russia from from hmm. Europe? It's been it's been relatively um, you know, sustained. So I don't know. I think I think there's a really interesting uh, period coming up here, and you know, we obviously trade a lot of the Italian debt as well. And uh, there's there's obviously a, a tool that the ECB has just has just embarked on in July to try and keep peripheral spreads, particularly Italy, from from widening materially. And uh, that election could have some some impact on whether that tool is going to be available for Italy's use or not. So there's a lot of interesting things kind of coming up in the next little bit. It'll be uh, I think it'll be a very challenging fall to trade and and the geopolitics around uh, around Europe. Are, I mean, always fascinating anyway, but. Particularly, I think the next three, four, five months will be really, uh, really fascinating. And a lot of a lot of dynamics there. Great. Um, maybe we'll move to the uh, to China. Uh, if there is one region of the world that seems like it is bucking the overall trends, it seems like it's China. Uh, they just announced that they are easing somewhat uh, uh, recently. Uh, what's your view on China, and, and do you expect it to remain sort of differentiated? So I, I do expect China to remain differentiated. I think um, <clears throat> clearly the zero COVID policy in China has been very, very significant in terms of, uh, you know, obviously societal impact, first of all, um, you know, the growth situation, supply chain issue, uh, which continues to reverberate around the world, the commodity story, uh, a whole bunch of reverberation and second derivative impacts, which I think are really Really interesting and obviously very very important. I mean, as you know, people people who've listened to me long enough, <clears throat> uh, I've heard me kind of, you know, my my macro framework is relatively simple, at least in theory. Um, you know, kind of understanding what the Fed's doing, what the dollar's doing, what oil's doing, and what China's doing. If you can kind of figure that out, then you're probably at least directionally going to be in the right the right way. Uh, now you just have to get the amplitude right. And uh, so we spent a decent amount, obviously, watching China. So we were surprised. To be fair, uh, recording this on on the, on the Monday overnight, um, uh, with China having cut its its medium term lending facility um, and its seven day repo rate, to be fair as well, um, because the guidance that they gave everybody publicly through official channels last week was, uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to be very focused on the fiscal side, and we don't want to aggravate. Um, uh, any upside inflation potential, and we don't want to add a lot more liquidity in the system via monetary uh, channels. So less than a week later, they went and did a surprise cut. So that was um, pretty surprising. <clears throat> it's been pretty clear to us, though, uh, for not the whole year, but I would say at least four months, that the growth target of 5.5%, the real growth target for China for four, for for this year of 5.5% was looking extremely unlikely to be attainable. Um, right. A lot of it because of the COVID lockdown and you just didn't see, I mean, you could look at the mobility stats from a, from a satellite perspective, from an AI perspective, and, and you just didn't see the mobility uh, 
moving around uh, around China. And so, you know, kind of wondering how they're going to get to this five and a half real percent growth target. I think this is basically the the pseudo admission that it is not going to be able to make five and a half percent real growth. And you saw mm-hmm. this, the second in command, um, Premier Lee, uh, effectively say this three or four weeks ago. Right. That, uh, well, the growth target is really, uh, uh, it, it really has some latitude on, in either direction, which was kind of the beginning of that, uh, which is why I was surprised last week when they said that they weren't going to do any more monetary stimulus via the central bank. And then, and then obviously they did it, they did it this week. So I, I think, I think Chinese growth is still, is still decent. I think it'll still print positive um, for the year. It's an important political year. There's the big uh, Politburo meeting later in the year. It hasn't been exact. hasn't been announced exactly when that's going to be yet, but it's usually in October, give or take. Um, and that, that's that's a very significant event. And obviously, the uh, you know I think the CCP wants to make sure that the economy is running as I wouldn't say on all cylinders, but you know as as hard as it can be um, uh, going going into that for you know for for obvious reasons for political mm-hmm. reasons. So. You know, I would say, I would say from a from a global growth perspective, we're relatively constructive on China. But what we've seen here in the last little bit is obviously a fair a fair amount of demand destruction coming from China, and that's that's impacted commodity prices. Oil has clearly traded off uh, significantly. Copper's come off. A lot of industrial metals have come off, um, and a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it is uh, is 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 lower is lower demand out of China. Um, uh, or, or, or demand destruction. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think, I think that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the Chinese have a little bit more, uh, a little bit more impetus now to, uh, to cut rates and inject a little more liquidity in the system for whatever reason, for whatever, whatever they're seeing, they're obviously, uh, somewhat concerned versus where they were a week or two ago. So I think that that's, um, that's probably good for global growth, but I'm not necessarily convinced that, uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that China's going to be able to save kind of a, a global economic um, slowdown here uh, for the next little bit. I mean, global central banks are, with the exception of China, are generally hiking rates. Um, I think consumption is is slowing, particularly on the good side. Mm-hmm. And I do think there are continued supply chain issues um, coming out of Asia, particularly Europe, that are going to be uh, challenging on a number of levels here for the next, you know, for the next little bit. So... You know, so we have we have a few trades that uh, you know try to take advantage of that, um, which which I'm happy to go over if, if we have time. Great. Uh, just before we get to the trades, I want to uh, briefly touch uh, on uh, the Jackson Hole Summit, which happens at the end of uh, this month. Sure. Um, a lot of the uh, people that we just talked about in the podcast will be in attendance. Uh, what are you expecting the bulk of the discussions to be focused on, Dustin, uh, at Jackson Hole? Yeah, so Jackson Hole is, for those that don't know, is kind of a big conference symposium that the the technically the Kansas City Fed uh, District Fed puts on once a year, uh, and it's usually late August, and it's kind of the big the big conference where uh, sometimes they I wouldn't say set out a new agenda, but if they want to announce a new policy or uh, try and amend where maybe the market might be skewing this would be a, a good venue to do that last year <clears throat> sounds almost comical to say it now last year they were focused on why inflation was transitory uh so that obviously <laughs> it's, it's not, not gonna go down well not go over well <laughs> but you know but in all seriousness i think that this year they're 
maybe obviously going to try and make up for that little, you know, <laughs> little, wa- little uh, wobble. Um, yeah. So I, I do think that this is a good venue to talk about the idea that rates need to be higher for longer, uh, that inflation might be a little bit more sticky slash structural and, and all that, all that sort of stuff. So I'm looking for a broadly speaking hawkish mess, hawkish message coming out of uh, Jackson hole, which is, I think, I think runs from the 25th to the 27th of August. Um, and I think that'll set the course and the temperature and the tone for, for the rest, you know, for the rest of the year. Um, you know, it is a global event. They invite a lot of people from a lot of other places. So there might be some stuff for, for some of the other, for some of the other banks, but generally it's, it's a little bit more us focused, fed focused. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what I, that's what I would expect. And if the market, particularly high beta assets or risky assets, if they continue to, uh, appreciate or, or be bid, then I think that, uh, Jackson Hole could be a bit of a, has the potential to be a bit of a turning point, uh, depending on how serious the, the, uh, the fed wants to get, you know, one thing that's been really interesting, um, kind of aligned with all of this is, is that financial conditions since the June meeting, since the June meeting, uh, FOMC meeting have loosened uh, a fair bit, have eased a fair bit. And I, I don't think the fed is very thrilled with how easy uh, financial conditions are, are 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 going because I think it I think the Fed knows that it makes its job more difficult and it might have to hike rates uh, either at a quicker pace or to a higher level and hold them for longer than it would otherwise like to do and by doing so it kind of lessens the probability of uh, the so-called soft landing that the Fed is clearly trying to engineer. Right. So the Fed needs to kind of right the ship on financial conditions. And I think Jackson Hole is a an excellent venue, frankly, given kind of where financial conditions have traded over the summer and the timing of Jackson Hole and where the market currently sits. I think Jackson Hole is an excellent opportunity for the Fed to try and right the ship if it wants to do that. But I believe I believe that it does because I think that if I think the Fed believes that if it doesn't ease financial condition, sorry, if it doesn't tighten financial conditions here relatively soon, it's going to be uh, have to be quite aggressive next year, and the backside of that means a a deeper a deeper slowdown and a deeper recession. Right. Um, well, we've taken a lot of time, Dustin. I do want to get to some trade ideas. You've littered a few of them through the conversation. Uh, I'll, I'll list a couple of them and let me know if uh, you want to add context or add to the list that I have here. Uh, but sure. you talked about the flattener trade uh, on the 210. Uh, yep. You talked about maybe taking high yield off a bit because it looks like it's gotten ahead of itself uh, yep. somewhat at this point. Tactically, in and out of the front end of the German curve um, yep. and uh, and uh, a flattener in Europe as well. And then trading in and out of Italian debt. I, I didn't. I wasn't clear where you currently are on Italian debt. If you're if you're uh, liking it or if you're selling. Yeah. So your your list is right on. So that's perfect. Thanks. Um, I would say on the Italian on the Italian side, we we continue to be short. So we look for okay. you know spread widening, so to speak, over the German benchmark. But if we were max short um, six weeks ago, I'd say we're maybe fifty or sixty percent of that position. Now, um, I want to watch the politics and see how that, which is always interesting in Italy, but uh, we'll, we'll see how the politics comes together. Um, it could be an opportunity to add to the short there, um, okay. but obviously global risk sentiment remains 
you know, remains very interesting. Another trade we continue to like too is we continue to be, we continue to be not massively long, but somewhat long of dollar Canada. So Canada short, U.S. dollar long hmm. uh, throughout the portfolio on the idea that uh, well, first of all, it's it's in the bottom of the range, which isn't which is relatively simplistic, but on the idea that uh, the Fed could cause a bit of a uh, correction here in higher beta assets, and generally the Canadian dollar trades relatively in line with higher beta assets. So um, if, if, if higher beta assets are selling off, so does the Canadian dollar. So we're, we're short Canadian dollars throughout most of the portfolio would be just the one I would add that I hadn't, uh, hadn't got to yet in our chat. That's perfect, Dustin. Uh, thanks for spending so much time. I look forward to our next conversation. We'll review uh, Jackson Hole and, and many other things, I'm sure. So thanks, Dustin, very much. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.